So hear these words from Isaiah 56 as we prepare uh, to hear the Lord. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it, fa- holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. This burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Father, we know that you're moving and working in this space. You're moving and working in our hearts and in our minds and our lives. And in the way that you come to us through your word, in a very particular way, you have promised to work. You've promised to cut and to heal at the same time, to challenge and correct, but to encourage and to strengthen. Lord, would you work through your servant, Cooney, and the words that he has prepared this week and in previous weeks, but also as his life is a testimony to your goodness and your steadfastness, gathering the nations to worship you today and forevermore. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in this place as we submit ourselves to you and to your word. Be with us this morning, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Christ Church, are you excited to worship the Lord together another year? Uh, It is a joy uh, to be gathered in Jesus' name uh, as those who trust in him for our salvation, uh, our one and only hope uh, in life and in death, in all things. Uh, This passage today, uh, as Addison mentioned, um, has, uh, yes, been uh, impactful in my life um, at various times, um, specifically in that first year, uh, as uh, I was coming to faith and um, wrestling with what this new uh, relationship with God meant, uh, many of you uh, know the importance of context when we read the Bible, but um, sometimes God uh, surprises us um, with speaking to us through his word as well, even when we're not all that familiar with the context. And so there I was my freshman year in high school. I didn't know what to read, and so I opened up my Bible. Isaiah is conveniently near the middle of the Bible, and so I opened up to, Psalm, uh, to Isaiah 56 um, and encountering uh, a hope and a vision for the gospel, for the church 
of God um, that communicated to me um, that indeed, yes, I had a seat at the table. And so that message uh, comes to you as well. Uh, Most of us gathered here today are not of Jewish heritage. And so we, uh, in a real sense, are counted amongst the foreigners in this text. And yet, uh, interestingly, Isaiah, after 55 chapters of speaking uh, to Israel about their failure to be faithful to the Lord, about their failure to be faithful to the covenant, about their failure to be a light to the Gentiles, uh, Isaiah continues to say that yet God will have mercy on them. Yet God will send a suffering servant who will fulfill all of the stipulations of the covenant that Israel failed to keep so that they might truly be redeemed as God's people. And that same message of salvation uh, is for all people. And that's where we find ourselves today in Isaiah 56. This passage comes in the wake of that beautiful passage of Jesus who was acquainted with grief, stricken and smitten for the sake of our transgressions. This passage comes after a beautiful vision for what this Christ will indeed do and calls the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, to have a confidence in him, to have that enduring hope in the fact that God, just as he was merciful to all of those who could not keep the covenant of their own strength and sent a suffering servant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to take their place to fulfill all righteousness, that that same God would walk with them and would keep them for all of their days until the Messiah, the suffering servant, would come back again in victory. And so this text here today, it is for the Christians. It's for the believers of all backgrounds, reminding us of where we've come from. Here, there's, uh, there's an expression of doubt, an expression of longing, an expression of, of wrestling with security and assurance in Christ. Many of these things may be familiar to you. So how does God answer those longings for us? How does God communicate to his people who are still here in the waiting between Christ's first coming and his second coming? How does God communicate to these people that yes, indeed, his house, God's house, is for you and for me, for all people who would place their trust in Jesus? Uh, First, we are reminded uh, at the outset of this passage that this house is indeed a house for the righteous. That God, as he is communicating to his people, he reminds them to keep justice and to do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come. And in that he's saying, for soon he will bring all things to its consummations, to its end, to experience the fullness of salvation. He's saying, the covenant is yours. 
right? You have been redeemed. You are covered in the, the righteousness of Christ. Um, and, and now God is calling you to holiness, to keep his law, uh, to, to live righteously and to be uh, God's uh, expression of God's justice in the world. These promises for the future of God's faithfulness uh, are meant to activate us, to activate us, the church, today in the here and now. And God says that in verse 2, blessed is the man, blessed is the one who does this. Blessed is the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Uh, It may be interesting how the the Sabbath all of a sudden gets brought up here, but you see the relationship between Sabbath and with keeping our hands from doing any evil because in this sense, the Sabbath was, was shorthand for for um, in Old Testament times for the prophets and also in, in biblical literature to, to describe uh, the entirety of, of the covenant and how God relates to his people. And so here, uh, by saying keep uh, the Sabbath, you, you, say, uh, you hear keep the ritual of the people of God, keep the ritual of uh, the, those who are redeemed, and keep also the content of your life. Uh, keeping away from any evil, keeping the content of our life consecrated to him. Now, there's much discussion on what our understanding now ought to be of the Sabbath, but I'll just, let me just say one thing about that. That as we are called to keep the Sabbath, we're called to weekly, regularly celebrate God's past perfect creation in the beginning. We are reminded of how God rested after creating the heavens and the earth and all that has breath and that it was all good and God rested. We're reminded of that uh, glorious work of God. At the same time, Sabbath if you continue to read through the Old Testament, and even uh, this, the book of Isaiah in chapter 66 refers to the Sabbath in this way, but the Sabbath is a foretaste of God's renewed creation at the end of time, where we will worship him in his perfect rest that will never end, right, in season and out of season, that we will be in God's perfect rest for all of eternity. And so when we observe the Sabbath as a ritual of the Christian life, we not only look back to the six and one pattern of creation and and rest from our work of the week, but we also look forward to that eternal rest that we have in God. So you see how the the life of this righteous one that God is calling Uh, us too, is one not only that seeks to uh, obey the the law as given, but seeks to obey the law in light of all that God has done, in light of all of redemptive history. See now, you as redeemed people of God, uh, God is calling you to keep the Sabbath not only as a ritual uh, as it was uh, to to Old Testament Israel, but as a testament to God inviting us into his eternal rest. And so, too, 
our lives as we seek to, to do good, to live justly and righteously. Right? These two are not only to fulfill past moral stipulations, but in order to display and show forth the glory of what God is doing and will bring to final culmination in the new heavens and new earth. So far, so good. God is, is reminding us that we have been given uh, this salvation and that as we wait for a final experience of that salvation, for his righteousness to be revealed, uh, God calls us to everyday faithfulness. And yet here, in verse 3, the passage takes an unexpected turn. You might think that after this description about the blessed man, he might go into speaking about uh, perhaps going into more depth of the people of Israel and what it looks like for them to keep the Sabbath. Or perhaps go into other uh, descriptions of what it looks like for the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, to be more faithful to keeping the Sabbath and keeping his hand from doing any evil. Uh, However, what does God do in this passage? Uh, This passage takes a turn to places of doubt, to places of longing, uh, to places of of deep-rooted hurt and, and where these people are wondering whether they can truly have confidence in their God. We see that this house is not only for the righteous, but the house of God is also for the yearning. He addresses the foreigner and the eunuch who in that day uh, were visible outcasts of the people of Israel. For one, they didn't have the outward markings of God's covenant people of circumcision. I'm sure there are all sorts of other things that were also visible, like their dress and the food that they ate, maybe the way that they smelled, uh, the way that they raised and educated their children. All of these things that were very different than the customs, the way of Israel. And then the eunuchs in particular This was a royal office that was uh, often held in the surrounding nations. You see it um, in in texts describing the the Egyptian court and the Babylonian court and the Assyrian court. And all of these surrounding nations had these uh, men who were emasculated to serve in the royal court. Um, And yet here we see that the prophet Isaiah speaking as the mouthpiece of the Lord, is addressing to this foreigner, to this eunuch, as his own. He's not speaking to them as outsiders, even though they, they very much were culturally. He wasn't speaking to them as those who did not belong, even though they may have felt that way. He was speaking to them as his own, and he tells them, Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. But God speaks to them in their need. See, uh, what we see here is that God has an undeniable heart for the outcast 
and the marginalized. We can ask many questions about why that is, but here in this text, we see that particularly for the, the experience of the foreigner and for the experience of the eunuch, they were acutely aware of their need for God. There was something about their life experience, their experience of being different, of not having a, a visible place in uh, God's people that made them acutely aware of their need for mercy and for grace. See, for the foreigner, they had a lack of assurance. Imagine every cultural mishap as they're trying to assimilate to the people of God. See, they believe in Yahweh. Uh, these foreigners have said, we renounce our old ways and we are joining ourselves to the Lord. And yet, even as they're trying to live this life as in their new identity of the people of God, every mishap is caused to doubt whether or not they truly belong. For the eunuch, perhaps it was a lack of worth. You hear that in that exclamation, behold, I am a dry tree. Someone that does not and cannot bear fruit. One of the expressions of uh, the blessings of the covenant uh, uh, that God made with his people was offspring, his children, right? And of course, it's not to denigrate that visible sign of God's faithfulness. However, as someone who is infertile, as a eunuch who has dedicated their life to uh, this royal service, whether or not it was of their own volition or they were forced to do that, they have lived this life and now have turned away uh, from whatever life they were previous living and they were joining themselves to the Lord. They're trying to live into this new identity, being the people of God. And the surest sign that that community held for God being at work and blessing someone's life was children, and these people wonder whether or not they had any worth at all. How could God possibly love me and bless me with his, with his righteousness, with his hope, with his love, if I am incapable of receiving um, and propagating the primary sign of his blessing in children? Perhaps that's what was going through their mind. A lack of worth. This passage is shocking uh, for another reason because the, the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 23 explicitly prohibits foreigners and eunuchs from participating in worship. Uh, if you are interested in reading that passage, I encourage you to go ahead and to take a look at Deuteronomy 23 because it is shocking. Uh, and I, forewarning um, for parents reading with children, some of the language is, is quite descriptive. Uh, you see, foreigners and emasculated men were barred from worship in the temple. After all, these foreign cultures were pagan um, and emasculation marred God's good creation. And so there was real cause for these people to doubt and to wonder. You know, I wonder 
ways in which we today too take truths of God and, and lose sight of what God is truly seeking to do with that truth and therefore lose an opportunity to welcome the outcast and to welcome those that do not believe they have a place in God's house today. Because you see, though Deuteronomy 23 and uh, being consistent with the rest of the Mosaic law, the, 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 the temple law or, ordained that foreigners and that eunuchs would not be able to participate in the regular worship within Israel. That was not God's last word. Um, one commentator describes it this way. He says, of course, the point had to be made that foreigners and emasculated men were bar- being barred from worship, uh, um, that these things were pagan, and that this marred God's creation. But this was not God's last word for us. His last word is openness and welcome for anyone whose faith comes to rest in Christ. To God, insiderness is no guarantee, and outsiderness is no obstacle. we see that God has another word for the outcast, for those who do not belong, for those who are outside uh, the people of God, and for those who doubt whether or not they could ever belong. What does he say to the eunuch and to the foreigner, to the eunuch, the one who is nameless and who may never propagate their line, who may never leave their mark in society, who may never experience this this common blessing of children, the one who may be shunned within society as a dry tree. What does God say? Though they die childless, it it is still them who are truly children of God. Like to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, it says in verse 5, that I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. If you have your Bibles open, you can see that in just the previous chapter, uh, in chapter 55, the prophet uses this exact same language to describe the name of God being eternal. In, in 55.13, it says, It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And in the wakes of these words, the eunuch is reminded that though they may not have the experience of earthly blessing and security in the way that society expects them to, though they may not experience the prosperity that the eyes of their brothers and sisters expect them to, or hold over them, that they will have a name better than sons and daughters and will be marked uh, with the name of the Lord and to be with him forever, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And for the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, verse 6, to minister to him, to love 
the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, he says, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. One of the other things that foreigners and that eunuchs were prevented from doing was to serve in the temple. This was an office limited to those who were specifically sons of Levi, right? And so it is so striking that in this passage, God would use the exact same language, even in the Hebrew, the exact same language used to describe the temple service of Levites to describe the way that foreigners, those who are outside the the cultural and ethnic bounds of Israel, that those who join themselves to the Lord will serve God with them, will serve God and minister to him and to worship him in his mountain and in his house. You see, what the eunuch and what the foreigner in this passage realize, what makes them so special in the eyes and the heart of God is the fact that in their experience of being an outsider, in their experience of wrestling with belonging, they recognized that their need could only be fulfilled in God. When we try as a people to do our best and to to take control of our lives, and to make a name for ourselves. That may get us so far, but it's not, it's, it certainly is not um, an enduring answer. That was certainly my experience. And what I came to realize in my own journey was how prideful and how arrogant it was to even think that I could do that in the first place. What about all the other people who are trying their hardest? Why do I deserve it better than them, more than them? Do I think I'm a better person than so-and-so, that I deserve a better life? What about all of my false and twisted motives for doing these things? The ways that I seek to honor my parents, but really I'm trying to save face and shove the blame on my brother? Or the ways that I seek to show that I'm a good, um, a good son to my mom uh, just to shun and, and to, uh, to denigrate my father. All of these ways, when we try to live a life of righteousness of our own, surely we can accomplish some good things, and yet, yet there is a clear and in a limit that is impossible to overcome. One commentator puts it this way. He says that, try to make ourselves kings, and we find only shame. Vow to become his slaves, God's slaves, for love, and we find ourselves wearing crowns. You see, the, the eunuch and the foreigner They recognized their need, and in their need, they came before the Lord with humble hearts and with open hands saying, God, if you are not for us, we have nothing in this world. And and 
they had experienced God's salvation, and yet they came knowing that they needed that same gospel message to keep them going for the rest of their lives. God answers them with a resounding, yes, you are welcome, that you are gathered, that you do belong. There's a novel called Shiokari Pass. It's a Japanese novel written by Ayako Miura. It was a bestseller in Japan in the 1970s. And one of the only uh, best-selling novels in Japan written by a Christian author uh, and, and read widely. It's also been translated into English. Probably not a bestseller here, although I wasn't alive in the 70s, so I couldn't tell you. Um, but for many... Uh, this story uh, has been very influential in bringing them to faith. It's a true story uh, based off of a man uh, named Nagano uh, Nobuo, who lived at the turn of the 20th century working um, for the railway company in the most northern island of Japan, uh, the scenery was much uh, similar to ours, except with more snow. Um, this man, he moved up to the n most northern island chasing a crush. Uh, he found that uh, there was no work, no life left for him in Tokyo, so he moved north trying to follow uh, this woman. And yet, throughout his journey, he was wrestling because this woman was a Christian, and he was not. Uh, his grandmother who raised him was a staunch Buddhist, staunch uh, Shinto adherent, and spoke very negatively about Christians. And so here he was, Nagano, loving this woman, uh, yet wrestling um, with all of the negative connotations and negative, uh, negative images of the Christian faith. Now, I'll spoil the book a little bit because what ends up happening is that, indeed, Nagano comes to faith. And yet, his experience uh, of coming to faith was not, maybe, was not a conventional one. Uh, the book includes a part of the testimony that he shared um, on the day that he was baptized. I'd like to read a portion of that. He says, uh, Before God and men, I humbly confess my faith. My mother was driven out of the house by my grandmother because she was a Christian. My grandmother was a great hater of Christianity, and I was brought up largely under her influence. When my grandmother died, my mother came to live with my father again, but I found it very hard to feel affectionate toward a Christian mother. I was unable to forgive her for being prepared to desert me, her own child, in obedience to her faith. But because my grandmother and then my father died very suddenly, I began to think about death and then sin. And especially during my adolescent years, I learned from my struggles with physical longings that I was a sinful person. Then by chance, in the winter of the year, I came to Sapporo. In the cold streets, I listened to the preaching of teacher Iki, an open-air evangelist. I was greatly moved and wanted to become a Christian. Previously, I had reached my own conclusions about Buddhism and no longer felt any resistance to being a Christian. However, 
Teacher Iki asked me if I admitted that it was my sins that caused Christ to be nailed to the cross. And I, didn't, I did not think that I had committed a great enough sin for that. This was because I prided myself that I was a more earnest person than others. But the teacher immediately told me to take a passage out of the Bible, just one, and to see if I could carry it out perfectly to the uttermost. I read the story of the Great Samaritan and thought I could never be as cold-hearted as the man in the story. I flattered myself that I would be like the Good Samaritan. So I decided to become a true neighbor to one of my friends, no matter what the cost. In order to be a good neighbor to him, I came to Asahikawa, where he lived, although I knew I would be the loser in several ways by doing so. And I thought that, seeing I had loved him from the heart and been a good friend to him, naturally, he would be glad. But he did not accept my efforts, and I built up a great hatred towards him. I was like the Samaritan, putting all his efforts in putting all my efforts into helping an injured, half-dead man on a mountain road, and I could not understand why he, why my friend, would shout at me. I was trying to help him, but he roughly pushed off my helping hands. When he did that, I hated him and cursed him in my heart. I became more and more filled with hatred towards him until at last I realized what was happening. I realized that right from the beginning, I had looked down on him. Every day I was unhappy and I prayed to God and I heard God's voice. You yourself are the wounded traveler, fallen on the mountain road. The fact that you are continually crying out to me for help proves it. I was the sinner who needed help. Then it came to me that it was really Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was the Good Samaritan. This was all so true. In my pride, I had taken the place of God and looked down on my friend. I realized what a great sin it was not to give God his rightful place. And then I knew that it was my sin that had nailed Christ to the cross. Now I believe in Christ's atonement on the cross for my sin. I believe in his resurrection and in the eternal life that he has promised. When I think about Christ who is crucified for us, I want to offer my life to God and very genuinely to become his disciple. It took a, a winding road for Nagano to realize his need for grace. It took a life of trying to live righteously for him to realize that he could never attain it on his own. In the same way, the eunuch and the foreigner, the marginalized, the outcast, through their experience of trying to overcome suffering and to overcome hardship, they realized the limitation of their own need, and they come to God with empty hands. For us today, how do we approach the throne of God? How do we approach the church? Do we come as those with a sense of entitlement for our seat at the table? Do we claim our birthright? I was born into this. 
I was raised in the church. This is mine. No, may it not be so. Would we be like the foreigner and the eunuch and Nagano who come empty-handed? Because this house is not only for the righteous and for the yearning, but it is a house for those who are redeemed. See, it's a mystery why God, who forbade these people from even participating in his temple worship, how God could say that he was gathering them in into his family. How could God say that they belonged when they were unclean? How could God say to us, my beloved son or daughter, when we are sinners deserving death? How could our offerings ever be accepted before him? We're reminded of this incredible turn of events uh, throughout scripture that Isaiah 56 alludes to uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 12 um, and on. It says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was us, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, the reason why God can say, he who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares that I will yet gather others besides those already gathered. It is because Jesus died so that we might be made one family gathered in one house to worship the one true God together for all eternity. I implore with you, Christ Church, that today and that this year, we might be a people shaped by that vision that as a people who were once outcasts, who were once the marginalized, dead in our sin, that we who were gathered under the name of Jesus, covered by his blood, that we might have that same spirit towards a lost and awaiting world, to our neighbors, uh, to those who are far off. Shortly we'll sing a beautiful hymn, Uh, that uh, was taught to me by a pastor that discipled me when I was in college. At the time, I was really unfamiliar with hymns, and he liked the old language, how sweet and awful is the place. And I thought, how dreadful. (laughs) It just sounds (laughs) terrible. And, And yet, right, awful, It's the old way that we would say awesome. In this hymn, we see that vision declared, right? It says, How sweet and awesome is this place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. 
while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. Each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Would you pray with me? Lord, why was I chosen as a guest to sit at your table? Lord, why were we invited uh, to live with you for all eternity, to serve you, to worship you, to sing with joy on your holy mountain? Lord, why were we chosen to be given names better than sons and daughters? Lord, it had nothing to do with us and everything to do with you and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. So God, I pray that through the rest of our worship here this morning, uh, Lord, that you would bring these truths to bear on our hearts. Lord, might we savor uh, the beauty of your gospel. Lord, for the sake of your glory on earth, for the sake of those who are longing and waiting and yearning. God, we thank you so much uh, that you continue to refresh us in your word in such a way uh, because we need it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.